Hello, welcome friends to the Relevant Roundtable, where we meet every Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. At the Roundtable, we discuss real-life situations that deserve more attention. These conversations are rich in personal insight that give listeners clarity and direction to influence and impart into their daily lives. I'm your host, Tony. Thank you for joining the table. Thank you, friends, for coming back to join us at the Relevant Roundtable. Tonight, we have with us an extraordinary therapist, counselor, just woman in totality. Her name is Shana Yvonne. She is here tonight to talk to us about minding our mental health or to mind our mental health, right? And so there are uh, strategies that she has that she wants to give to us, um, some identifiers that she will explore tonight in the mental health arena. So we just thank her so much for coming by and wanting to chat with us. We also thank you for stopping by to hear from her. So Shana, with all of that being said, welcome to the Relevant Roundtable. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and why mental health is so close to your heart? Thank you so much for having me. This is really an honor. My name is Janie Vaughn. I am a psychotherapist in the Philadelphia area, but I've worked with women and men that have lived in Botswana, Sri Lanka. I'm sitting here thinking of all the places that um, my clients are. So it's been a far reach since entering this field in 2018. And I chose this. Well, I think the field chose me. I always had a, a mental health thrust, even without the license. I, I've been doing work with girls and women since I was a girl. I started a program called formerly the Lady Diva program, now the Legends House Foundation. Uh, when I was 19 years old, a sophomore at Howard University, and I had been dealing with some chronic depressive episodes. And so I decided, you know, like there has to be some girls out here that are going through the same thing. And so I gathered these little girls from church and brought them to my mama's house and made them chicken and taught them how to cook baked chicken. And we just sat up all night and talked about what they were going through. And that was group therapy. I didn't even know what I was doing. I just was kind of following my spirit and my gifting. And so after working in public schools and charter schools and doing the work, I made a decision to obtain my master's degree in mental health counseling from the University of Pennsylvania. So I just kind of hit the ground running. It hits very close to me, home for me, because my own struggles with mental health, I've seen my family struggle with mental health, but also just Black people in general, Black women, our story in this country, there's rarely any one of us that has not been touched by mental health in some way. And so my goal is to really stand proxy for all of um, all of us as a people. And it has just been a great ride. And so that's why I do what I do. I want to extend healing strategies to the community that really has been forgotten to young people that have been forgotten, you know, to women, to men, to marginalized people. And so that's my work. And I'm, I'm really honored to do that work. I am so honored just to have you here with us at the roundtable tonight to discuss that work. And so, Shana, from your seat 
right? So to speak, what would you say are some of the key, and they might even be low key, to be honest with you, but what are some of the key attributes that people exhibit when there is subtle mental health? Mm. And you know, I think like first, knowing that mental health is literally a part of our health is a big thing to say. And I say that because oftentimes we will say like, oh, this person has high blood pressure or this person has cancer or this person has that. And we'll zone in and go, those are physical health issues. Those things really matter. But the mental health is just as important. And I want to lay that out first because those subtle things can often be like overlooked because we're not looking at mental health as a high priority. And so one subtle thing is insomnia, the inability to sleep at night or sleeping too much, just overall exhaustion all the time. And since our mental health and our physical health go hand in hand, what I've noticed is when we're not taking very good care of our physical health, our mental health is impacted. When we're not taking very good care of our mental health, our physical health is impacted. So Irritability, just walking around not feeling good, like not feeling good about yourself, not feeling good about anything. A dead giveaway for many of my clients that they may be entering into an episode, like at the beginning of it is they struggle with waking up in the morning, their eyes open and they lay in bed for a long period of time. And then they end up being late for work, late for school drop-off and they, they, they're just not on top of things. And it's those little small things that, that go unnoticed and we'll go, oh, we're just tired. Oh, we're just this. And it's not that at all. It's, these are signs that there are, there's something chipping away at your mental stability. And it can be a byproduct of low vitamins. It could be a byproduct of a major trauma or a minor trauma or traumas that have gone on dealt with. Or just fatigue. Many mental health episodes are happening because we're burnt out and we're not getting enough rest. And so what happens? You start to lose focus. You become groggy all the time. Then you become irritable. Another little sign is, what am I doing to self-medicate? I had a client that I worked with and we noticed that she became very hypersexual at the beginning of an episode. For someone else, they might go, oh, I'm, I just want to have sex. But the hypersexuality that was on this young lady, like she began to wonder, like, why do I feel like this every day? Like there's something driving me to be over sex every single day. And it was actually that she was dealing with depressed, d- depression and her sexual appetite was how she healed herself. So that became a huge indicator for her. Um, for us in our work together, that it might be time for her to do some recovery. And so we spend some time with her just operating kind of from a place of celibacy, just so we could figure it out. So those are just little signs that sound really normal, right? But if you're not careful, those little signs turn into big signs and, and depressive episodes are real. They can last anywhere between 90 days and years. So when those subtle things are unchecked, right, or unresolved, Mm -hmm. I think you kind of alluded to that they grow, right? 
Yeah. And so would you say that they grow into episodes that may then preclude to self-destruction? They can. They really can. In self-destruction, and I like that you use self-destruction because, right, we can define that so many ways. Like, and I think the first thought that most people think of is like suicidal ideations, death by suicide, but that's actually not the first step in like self-destructive behavior. Anything that we're doing in excess to over-medicate ourselves in a way that actually does not cause real recovery can be a form of self-destruction, right? Like, I'm going to find an example. Like, let's talk about process addiction with food. Because, you know, we have, we have substance and then we have process. So food is a substance, I mean, a process addiction. So when you're dealing with food addiction and you're depressed, you will notice that you are like, you're eating everything from an emotional space. You start to gain a lot of weight. I've had clients gain upwards to 50 pounds in a depressive episode. And it started with, I just want to have this snack because it makes me feel comfortable. Like that comfort snack, right? And then the next thing they know, they're eating multiple times a day food that may not even align with their proper health regimen, meaning if you have high blood pressure or diabetes, now I'm eating food that I know I can't have, but it provides a comfort for me while I'm dealing with depression and anxiety. And so that is self-destructive. That's why I love that you use that word. And yeah, it, it moves us into a place where we no longer care about ourselves we're just trying to just trying to meet the need of the depression. And oftentimes our depression is calling for comfort. It's calling for peace. But depression, I'm, I speak about it almost like it's a person. And oftentimes I train clients to look at it like it's a person. Like, yo, homie, depression is over here. Your play cousin, depression is back. Let's deal with her accordingly. And what does depression want from me? It's really going to be the thing for my greater good because depression is a distortion. So I'm not going to make any decision, no major decisions in this state. Or if I do, I need to do it in wise counsel because I know that I'm having some distortion. And so, yeah, it is a, and that's why we need basic information on mental health. That's why that question was so key because many people are not realizing that those little things that you think is just like, oh, Shorty just got a bad attitude. No, Shorty is probably really depressed and has been depressed and her depression manifests itself in, as anger, that angry black woman thing. Many children, when they have anxiety, they say they have a stomach ache. They are also hyperactive. They can also be really angry. The reality is they could be dealing with heavy anxiety and depression and we're medicating them. We're yelling at them. We're putting them in the corner. And it's actually their first sign that their mental health is getting fragmented. So yes, it can lead to self-destruction. That's really good. As you were talking, I was just thinking about daily living, right? And how those signs of depression, that anger, sometimes even being reclusive and isolated, those are things that some people do in their daily lives, but they don't identify it as being depression. Mm -hmm. So 
if you had someone to come to you and, you know, kind of lay that on the table to you, well, these are the things that I'm going through, but verbally they're telling you, but I'm not depressed. What would be your process in really helping them to see that that friend, that cousin, it really is visiting them? It's in the room. Right. And I think with most of my clients, because I I work with predominantly identifying as Black clients, African-American clients, and right now I work with many Black men. And one thing that I've noticed is that from a cultural space, we know how to endure a whole lot of pain. So we could be depressed for 55 years and think that this is normal because grandma was depressed, mama was depressed, daddy was depressed, the whole community was depressed, everybody the poppy still was depressed, everybody depressed. And we're like, oh no, that's just that's just our everyday life. You know what I mean? And so when people come to me more often than not, they have reached a breaking point, something major has occurred. I'm rarely called in in my practice with people who are just trying to manage. Because there's such thing as just like, I'm just do this for self-care. I come once a month just so that I can kind of empty myself out. My clients graduate to that. But when they initially come to me, there is a major event that has taken place that has shifted the course of their life. And they're recognizing that this might be a problem. So my first step is, tell me what your most pressing issue is that brought you here to therapy. And so they say, my mother died. I'm like, okay, my condolences. We talk about mom. Oftentimes from the death, I scratch the surface. I find out that there's a lot underneath it. And then kind of like midway through, I'll go, well, you know, just out of curiosity, you know, how are you sleeping? How are you eating? On a scale of one to 10, how much anxiety are you feeling? On a scale of one to 10, are you having any depression? Oftentimes you're right. People identify anxiety much easier than they identify depression because I think that anxiety now has a feeling, a sound. It's a little more tangible than depression. Like you feel the nerves on the inside. We're also talking a lot more about anxiety. So people are identifying anxiety much easier in therapeutic settings than depression. And so once someone lays out all of their stuff on the table, I help them to see I think you may be dealing with depression. There's always this silence because depression, I think, sounds way worse than anxiety. And it makes people think, oh, shoot, I'm on the verge of crazy. And I just kind of talk them back from it and make it really real. Like some telltale signs, depression is like, look at your dishes. Are your dishes piled up? Have you folded all your laundry? Is your house in disarray? Is your car in disarray? And I just kind of try to make it as light while it's extremely heavy as possible. And I try to encourage clients to know that like depression is not a life sentence. It just means your brain is exhausted. And when it's provided from that lens, I notice that people are more likely to embrace it so that we can deal with it. Because as long as it's not embraced and we dance around it, which is so easy to do when you come from a culture and a cultural dynamic where we have all just lived with depression and done well. Like I have many clients who are like six figure top earning people living, functioning, breathing and doing fully depressed. 
And so in their mind, it's like, I got here this far. Like, it can't be that. And it's like, no, it's that. And imagine how far, how much further you can go if we treat this. Because you're walking around with a limp and brilliant. So, yeah, that's the process. I rarely get people that are coming to me just like, you know, I'm perfectly fine. I just think I want a therapist. Most people are like, there's been a crash in my life and I'm navigating it as best I can, but I feel overwhelmed. And a lot of times from that space, I'm able to lay out for them and say, this may be depression, this may be anxiety. A new conversation that I'm noticing more and more is like, have you considered meds? Which for a long time, I did not do in my practice, but I have recently been having those conversations about meds as it relates to severe depression, because I do think that people need meds from time to time. You mentioned recovery, right? And you also mentioned early on tonight about your experience with depression, right? Mental health. So from a recovery perspective and your experience, would it be fair to say that although you may have gone through the recovery process, that depending on the timing or the season or circumstance in your life, that depression may come back to visit. And if that's the case, then how do you maintain your success in recovery? That is a very brilliant question. And the answer to that is absolutely. Like I refer to depression as a play cousin and a friend and a shadow because if I don't get enough rest or for me, it's rest that will trigger me at this stage in my recovery. Also eating habits. If I don't, I will be in an episode and sometimes miss it. And that's just me being really honest. I have missed it. I've been in an episode and didn't know. And we had, the pandemic was so hard. I lost my aunt, my great aunt, which was more like also another grandmother. She's my grandmother's sister, but they really raised me together, kind of like as their granddaughter. And she died of cancer. I was a part of her end of life team. And it was my first big job in the family. And by that, I mean, like, I was responsible for calling everyone when she died. I was there. I was putting morphine in her mouth. I had to plug it out. My great cousin, who was more like my big sister, my a mother figure to me. This is her mother. She's crying. She's falling apart. I'm like a stone. And I get the call that she passes. I have to call everyone in the family and deliver the news. And I remember being in my kitchen and like losing it for like a second, like crying really bad and then like pulling it together and pledging through and making calls. And then I went to work and I just was like, I'm a thug. I got this. And that was Wednesday. My cycle came on out of nowhere when I got the call that she passed. That was the first indication to me that my body was in utter shock because I don't have a cycle that's not regulated. And I went, oh my God, it was like out of nowhere. By Friday, I started having electric shock pains through my leg. They, it felt like fire was whipping through my leg and it would happen at the most impromptu times. I was on an interview with Temple University at that time to be a professor. And in the middle of my interview, I went Ugh, like that. 
And you guys can't see me, but like I just did the whole dramatics for you. And it was horrible. And this went on for six months. I continued to work. I would cry when I needed to. And then finally, I'm going to all these visits, visiting the doctor. And my doctor was like, Shana, I think you're in a depressive episode. And it was triggered by grief. And that's what's wrong with your leg. And so I say that to say, like, none of us is, is beyond this. I come from a family with a genetic disposition towards um, depression and also a cultural dynamic where I was raised about around very depressed people. So depression is always sitting there for me to like go, let's hold hands and let's get quiet together and let's isolate together and let's do all the things. So I think what happens is you go through different phases of recovery. And for me, what I've noticed is it shifts like it doesn't manifest itself the way it did when I was a teenager during my onset. I'm not going to be sitting in the room crying all day. I may not. I've noticed that I have a weight loss. I may not eat as much. And these are all those little foxes that let me know. And then recently it has been actual health issues where I'm going to the doctor and they're like, it, we can't find anything. They're like, you, you think you're dealing with some other, you know, mental health things? Not from like a, oh, girl, you imagine this, but when there are mental health issues, your body is triggered in so many different ways to signal to you that something is wrong. And so, yes, I think, I think it's like a club. I think once you've been through a life of cycles with depression, like we need line jackets or something. Like it's like I pledged, I need a jacket that says like I survived or something. And I think it's a society that you're always a part of and you have to constantly find ways to stay above the water, but not just above the water, like to float on the water. Because if you're trying to swim all the time, you could be dealing with anxiety and then the depression is just thinking. So my goal is to float to find peace in it, to find activities that raise my serotonin levels, and also to be very in tune with myself enough to know when there's been a shift. And then to be honest enough, right, to say there's a shift and there could be something wrong here. Because depression, when you've dealt with it for a long time, it becomes embarrassing when it comes back. It's like, tell me, man, I'm like, I really worked hard to keep you from up out my house. But now it's kind of like you're the, I just look at it like you're here and I don't want you to be here. So I'm going to have to take some steps to get you up out of here. But while you're here, I'm going to be really kind to you because you're not here because I'm a bad person. You're here because I am exhausted and I'm in need of a space of recovery. And just for the further, to further answer that question, what does recovery spaces look like? If I feel like I'm in a moment, everything around me has to be beautiful. So I typically will start with making sure that my home is clean, making sure that my car is clean. I'm bleaching everything down. I'm watching documentaries. These are the things that bring me joy. I'm listening to a lot of soul music. I'm eating well and I'm trying my best to sleep. And if I can't sleep, I'm not afraid to take melatonin. I'm not afraid of a sleep aid. If it gets too bad, be careful with that. I haven't done it in a very long time. But yeah, recovery. Everything around you should be beautiful so that you can just relax. I think that that's phenomenal. I have one last question. I know we're about to wrap up. So if you could just quickly answer this one last question, 
And then let our um, listeners know exactly where they can find you. The last question is, how do you know that your recovery is authentic? I think you know that your recovery is authentic when you are, when the audio matches the video, right? When you're more concerned about, is my life away from everyone more effective? Am I at peace with what my life looks like away from everyone else? And am I taking the necessary steps every day to have real joy? And on the days that I don't have it, am I honest enough to say I didn't have it today? This was a bad day, but I'm going to start again tomorrow. And I'm going to love on myself and care for myself so that I can have the opportunity to start again tomorrow. I think that's when you know, when you're not quick to beat yourself up, when you're not running away from it anymore, when you're like sitting with it while also working on it. I think that's what true recovery looks like. So. What is a word of wisdom that you would give our listeners before we wrap up this evening? And again, just want you to share your contact information with them just in case someone has a need and you could potentially fulfill the need. I think a word that has come up quite a bit in this interview is being authentic. And then for me, just radical humility and self-awareness. If you know something is not right, it's okay not to be okay. I don't care how big of a title you you have or who you are to your family or for men, you think you can't like cry or be vulnerable. Like the, the fighting against it is no longer serving you. So it's time to figure out what's going on, embrace that there is something happening and then working with a trained professional to bring forth the healing that you need. And it doesn't have to be me, but someone that you are aligned with culturally, spiritually is very important because it's deep work, but it's necessary and it will liberate you to start the process. If you are interested in working with me, you can reach out to me at www.shaneyyvonne.com. I can also be found on Instagram at legendary Yvonne. I would love to work with you or I can help point you in the direction of some physicians, clinicians that can really help you build out a holistic healing plan. Shana Yvonne, thank you so much again for being with us this evening at the Relevant Roundtable. For certainly your work is very, very relevant and certainly appreciate all the work that you do, not only for the community, but in the world, right? I don't know what else to say. I'm just, I'm so honored that you are here tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes. And so to our listeners, thank you again for coming to sit with us at the Relevant Roundtable. We want to remind you that we're here for you every Thursday evening, eight o'clock Eastern Standard Time. If in fact you have a story that you would like to share at the Roundtable, we invite you to visit us at www therelevantroundtable.com. Thanks again, and we'll chat with you next week. If you